Father, thank you for a chance to sing such wonderful hymns tonight. We thank you that we can be right with you through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We no longer have to be warring individuals against you. Not under your wrath any longer because of the great grace that was shed on our behalf through Jesus Christ. And brought us into this eternal relationship, Lord. What joy to sing such truth, Lord. Now give us strength as we look at a difficult text, Lord. But one that really helps us understand your view of what's going on in our world even today. And how you respond to these things. And how we should respond. So, Lord, give us graciousness, but give us strength to stand. In Jesus' name, amen. When you get to Leviticus 18, um, I would match it up with Romans 1. Leviticus 18 is the Romans 1 of the Old Testament, and Romans 1 is the Leviticus 18 of the New Testament. As you look at these two passages, both of them frustrate. Frustrate people who want to have a God... But they don't want his morals. They don't want his commands and the way he has designed things. And yet God in his kindness, even before the fall, he knew all that was going to happen, right? He knew Adam and Eve would reject him. He knew what the world needed. He knew knew the world needed an understanding of biblical sexuality with what was coming. He knew that Sin would bring death and decay and destruction. Sexual immorality would would threaten and challenge his design for the family. It would bring great sorrow to his creation that he loved. Doesn't take long. Man gets into trouble right away, doesn't he? Genesis 6, verse 5, the Bible says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man, it was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There's no room for good. It shows certainly a very clear description of depravity. There's no good in man. And here it just spilt all over. God judges the world. You remember this? Genesis 6 through 9 with a flood. But in his infinite plan, he purposed. He purposed to raise up a nation. That he would be their God. He would be their king. And he would bring a seed that would save his people from their sins. But that nation was supposed to be a light to the world. The nation of Israel was to be a light to the world. They were under the theocracy of God, that God was their king. And they were to live according to his standards, not their own. And yet, the nation, though God gave them, gave them a loving law to reconcile, allow them to have an ongoing relationship with him, They fell into the destructive nature of sin, didn't they? They rejected God's word. Isn't hard? We're in the infant stages of the nation now, and the law is being given, but it isn't hard to see the rest of the Old Testament and see that they rejected God's word and they lusted after the pleasures of the world, and great heartache, great destruction comes to this nation. Israel remains in the disciplined hand of God even now. We believe he still has a plan for them. But in the interim, he's raised up the church. He's birthed the church through this great propitiatory work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And 
now there is this bride of Christ that he affectionately calls his bride, his household. All terms that lend us to this beautiful instruction of God's view of the family. And this church, now motivated by the grace of God and the gift of faith, two marvelous things that God gave us, we now strive by the work of the Spirit, the truth of the Word of God, to live holy lives. We strive to live in ways that are pleasing to Him for His glory. And when a Christian studies the law, certainly like a passage here like Leviticus 18, we see, we, the Christian, sees the graciousness of God to warn of this destructive nature of sexual sin, sexual immorality. We, we think it's kind of him. And yet the world hates it, don't they? Despise that there's a God who would stand against their own created view of love. When God is purely the definition of love. But in us, in us, there's this internal desire now to heed these warnings, isn't it? And we can mishandle it, and we get legalistic, and we can bang on people sometimes without grace and, and shame on the church when it's done that. But the true church, those who love grace and still are amazed at the gospel, these warnings are a gift from God. And they help us see how God himself is protecting the family, his design for the family, versus what the world will do with it. Well, it is a challenging passage, and I've broken it up into four thoughts. We'll do my best to get through it. I'll, it is a, a little longer text, but um, in some of it, again, I'll, I'll summarize it, and, and, and some of it's hard to read. It's disgusting. Not the Bible, but the sin of how wicked man can be. And so we'll work our way through this carefully. First, there's an obedience to God's moral law that provides personal, and for the nation of Israel, and I think for every nation, if they would adhere to these, national protection from a devastating, devastating nature of sin. So there's an obedience to God's moral law, and that provides personal and national protection from the devastation, the devastating nature of sin. Look at the first five verses. Then the Lord then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. Uh, it just sets the tone right there, doesn't it? You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. And you shall not walk in their statutes. You are not to perform... You, excuse me, you are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accordance with them. I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. But you can't help but hear that constant presentation of his authority, right? I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am your king. I am your ruler and master. Heed these words. As you get into Leviticus 18, it, it's one of the most extensive passages in the Old Testament, particularly, and even really in the Bible, on what God has to say on 
on the perversion of human sexuality. And it's a clear warning. You can't help but read this and not see the warning, um, even in these first few verses here, that God sees, he witnesses. When David fell in Psalms 51, he, sa- he proclaims that God watched him in that sin. And so you, you can't help but see this, that God sees the wickedness of sexual immorality and he warns of his judgment of any nation or even individuals who will partake in what God is going to clearly lay out as pagan, not of his kingdom, pagan practices. Now you might ask the question, well, how do we respond to this? You're going to teach on the law. We've been teaching on the law here. And how do we do that as New Covenant Christians? Well, yeah, the Bible says that we're not under the law, but we're under grace, Romans 6, 14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but you are under grace. And then challenges <coughs> the second time. It says, what, what then shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? May it never be. Galatians 5.18 says, but you are led by the Spirit. You're not under the law. That's the great difference, right? The Spirit of God directs us to the truth of the Word of God. Romans 10.4, one of my favorite verses when it speaks of this issue, is that for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone believes. So we no longer gain our righteousness through the law or attempt to gain it. We couldn't do it anyway. Our righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. But then Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.8, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So for a Christian, there are still many things within the moral law of God that is very important to us, very helpful to us, keeps us from destructing, keeps us from imploding as families in the society. And so we, yes, we don't gain our righteousness through obedience to the law or gain some kind of correct standing as so many even in the New Testament that Paul was challenging were trying to do. But we do agree with these principles, don't we? And as we read this, the more I studied, the more I said, oh, if our nation would return to this. What a beautiful place to live would it be. But the farther we move, we see more destruction come with it. One author that I read said that the law is, in some ways, a guardrail still for Christians and for society. It keeps us from imploding, keeps us from the devastating nature of sin. And, and remember, at this time, this is the only nation that claimed God as their king, the living, true God. All other nations were polytheistic. But the nation of Israel, as it's being formed and growing here and now as a law and a tabernacle and so forth, their king is Yahweh. He is their covenant God. See, there's there's no other nations pledging their allegiance under God. I looked at a few different pledges, like ours, our Pledge of Allegiance of America and the flag, Canada... Um, several European nations, uh, several African nations, still have a, a pledge that their nation is under God. I don't know how much longer they'll keep those things, but they're still there. But when you get to this time, there's no other nations. You have to understand that there is no other nations that seek after God. Israel is it. And so there's this unique relationship that Israel has with Yahweh and has singled them out among this perverse world. 
the more I studied this, the more I read, the more I began, not that I didn't understand it before, but you begin to see why God trampled these nations with Israel. Men, women, children, wiped them all out. That's what these nations were known for, was their immorality. But the law here expresses the mind and heart of God, right? This is God. This is the perfect law of God. And, and so it's, it's given to us, and we see these truths still in the new covenant, right? And I think the most prevalent that we see out of the law is the role of, of human sexuality. So much of that is still so prevalent. We studied in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 5 and 6. We're very strong, right? 5, you have a man living with his mother-in-law and a terrible immoral. 6, he goes on to say in verse 9 that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. It means those who don't have the declaration of righteousness through Jesus Christ will not be sons and daughters of the king because an inheritance only goes to the children. So he's making it very clear if you want to live in, in this immoral, godless, pagan way, you're not my children, you've proven it, and you thus will not inherit my kingdom. And then he goes on to say what that is. Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterous, effeminate, homosexuals, all those first set is all sexual immorality. He adds, and just important, is thieves and covetous and drunkards and revilers and swindlers, these will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then you know this great text, right? And such were some of you. <laughs> see, see, godly people put on a display that God rescues the lost. And Paul's reminding them, he pulls you out of this debauchery that was going to drag you to hell. And he washes you and sanctifies you and sets you apart. He declares you righteous in the name of Jesus Christ. See, this, this all translates over, right? We see the role of the law, particularly in human sexuality, really taught in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 12, 21. I, I didn't see this till yesterday. I didn't remember this verse, at least. And I was tracking down some of these thoughts. Paul says this, I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humiliate me before you. Quite a statement. And I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and have not repented of impurities, immoralities, and sensualities which they have practiced. And what a verse. I, I'm concerned. I'm afraid I'm going to come. And you're still going to live in this life of debauchery. This life of paganism. And God is going to humiliate him in front of him. That means, I mean, just imagine the weight of having to deal with those captured by that depth of sin. Ephesians 5.3 tells us that immorality and all forms of impurity and greed must not even be named among those who are saints. Colossians 3.5 says to consider our members of our earthly body as dead to immorality, impurities, passions, evil desires, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. And that's exactly what the Old Testament is about. Sexual, human sexuality, unbiblical human sexuality, led them right into idolatry. And idolatry led them into, him, into unbiblical sexuality. Look at, uh, get to turn to 1 Thessalonians with me. This is a fascinating passage that teaches us great truths. 
First Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 3, we'll start there. I always love this phrase. When you find this, you would want to sit down and really study this passage. For this is the will of God. Right? How many pastors or counselors or people get asked this question all the time? Hey, pastor, what's the will of God for my life? I don't know. <laughs> well, I do. Here it is, right here. Well, the will of God is your sanctification. Your growth into the image of Christ... That's the will of God. That is, and here's one of the ways you do it, is you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, setting apart. The whole passage is about a nation who is set apart, not like the rest of the pagan nations. Now we take it into a new covenant setting. Our lives are set apart for the Lord Jesus Christ and we honor him with it. Verse 5, not in lustful passions, like the Gentiles who do not know God. That's the book of Leviticus 18. It's all about these pagan nations. He doesn't want them to be like that. And that no man trespass or defraud his brother in a matter. And and this is important because one of the two great commands, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbors yourself. When you start to analyze sexual sin, it is a complete rejection of loving your neighbor it destroys societies it destroys neighborhoods and families and so forth and so paul says look look no man transgressed or defraud his brother in this matter because the lord is an avenger of all these things just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you he who rejects this is not rejecting man but god who gives his holy spirit to you what a strong passage Can you hear Leviticus in that? And so this law translates great. We we see this moral aspect of God's law come in the New Testament, but I think even with greater strength in that the Lord Jesus Christ has freed us from these things. So it's clear in the New Testament that I think the writers inspired by God were greatly affected by this passage, this particular text, and certainly a love for Christ and his word. Now, Obedience to Leviticus 18, and let me throw Romans 1 in there, I like to pair those two together, are not only expressed in our love for God that we submit to his plan and his will for biblical sexuality, but it's also, as I said just a minute ago, it's an expression of our love for our neighbors. We, he, he's going to say in this passage that you defile you and the woman that you had adultery with. So there's a defilement that comes that defiles the neighbor, defiles the neighborhood, defiles God's view of marriage. Now, seven times, as you turn back to Leviticus 18, God instructs Israel not to act like the nations around them. Seven times in this passage. Seven times he says, don't act like the nations, other nations. Don't act like the pagan nations. Don't act like the pagan nations. Seven times he says it. And so you find that's the, that's the emphasis of this text. And and God had already promised, but way back in Exodus 23, he promised to drive out these nations before them. Exodus 23, 23, for my angel will go before you, bringing you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Preserites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. So God already promised to take care of this. 
But notice in our text, in verses 2 and 3, he says, I am the Lord your God. I'll say that many times throughout here. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt, where you lived. Walk around in the world, your feet get dusty. You've been in Egypt for 400 years. There I protected you and grew you. But you saw wicked things in Egypt. Many of the theologians that I read on this said, so much of what they began to struggle with came with them from Egypt. The golden bull calf at the foot of Mount Sinai, a product of Egyptian gods. Verse 3 goes on to say, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. So not, not, don't take what's behind you and don't take what I'm taking you to. Reject that. I reject that. And don't walk in their statutes. So the Bible's reminding us that there are things listed in Leviticus 18 that the nations around them practice. It's part of their life. I read one guy who was talking about the Persians. I always thought the Persians were kind of halfway decent when they came in, beat Babylon, took over um, really all of the world in a sense. They were the next world rulers in the Persian Mede-Persian Empire. Um, but even in that, I, I read that they encouraged mothers to marry daughters and commit sexual acts for the worship of their gods. That's what Daniel worked in, right? That's what Daniel was, he was in the kingdom, he was in the palace. See, this is all around them. When you look at the nation today, or nations today, many of these commands against sexual immorality are, are found here. And they're openly practiced. There's this twisted sense of self-gratification. And if you get in my way, you're a hater. But Leviticus 18, we realize that this is God's word for us. Another good verse that I began to think about a little bit was Romans 12, 1 and 2. As I thought about the law, and the moral law of God, particularly in this very physical, very... Um, sexual sins and, and relationships and all of that, I thought about Romans 12, 1 and 2. It says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, now this sounds very Old Testament in a lot of ways, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You know, Rome, Rome was a mess. You study Roman history and Sexual immorality was just so pervasive, it destroyed that nation. And so here, he's writing to the church in Rome, hey, offer your bodies. Don't, don't engage like the rest of the world. Offer what's acceptable to God. And do not, look at this, do not be conformed to this world. Here's little Israel, living out in a bunch of tents, still in the desert. They're going to do a lot of time there because of their lack of obedience. And are surrounding the known world is completely pagan and worships God with worships their gods with immoral sexual acts. Well, the modern culture today is really caught up in this as well. And it just shows Satan just loves to attack. He loves to attack the family unit that God has designed. And it forces us to be reminded that. That intimacy, because there's so much, so much about this passage, is immoral sexual acts not to do. 
But God granted, and we're going to look at this, more of this on Sunday morning, God granted this beautiful relationship between a, a husband and a wife, a male and a female, that God puts together, that Jesus himself says, if God put it together, not, nobody put that thing apart. And he, he, re, he reminds us, I, I think it just reminds us how beautiful that intimacy was given to, to a husband and wife, and yet it is a direct attack of Satan. And it's destroyed. Adultery and so many other things have destroyed so many relationships that were meant to display Christ in his church. But notice in verse 4 and 5 there that these judgments and statutes were given by God and they were to live by them. And the reason is that I'm the Lord your God. I am the I am God. Is that not enough? I split the seas. I drowned your enemies. I feed you from the heavens. I give you water from rocks. I am Yahweh. Obey me. What an amazing thing. There's so much written on this chapter by so many different people. Um, one of the things that was written on was the health of the nation of Israel when they were in obedience. They were so much healthier than the rest of the nations around them. Many of the nations died very young ages of sickness and diseases. But this nation early on before it drifted away from God and rejected him was a healthy nation. And, and that, again, brings you to Romans 1.27. The Bible says that the rejection of God's word brings a penalty due within them. Sexual immorality always brings disease and destruction and and often causes such hurt and such pain in people's lives. But here we have a reminder that obedience to God's word is a source of life. There's a great source of life here. But rejection just brings death. Second thought, and I'm going to get moving here. The, God's protection of his biblically designed family. There's God's protection of his biblically designed family. This verse is uh, really is a section here, 6 to 18. And here, God defines sexual sin in relationships closest and then moves out. And he, and he goes down through these dozen, 14 verses or so here. Uh, and, he, and he starts with the closest relationships and then moves out. And he's declaring and defining specific boundaries that he set to protect the family. And the instruction was just critical for this nation. Remember, they're, they're the ones that God promised in chapter 12 that out of Abraham, this great nation would come. Nation, a, a nation so large that you could not number them. You could, if, as counting the stars or the sands of the sea, they were to be innumerable. And, and not only that, and maybe even more important, out of this Abrahamic promise, there was this seed that was to come. And so it was critical that this nation cho would chose to obey and believe God for its own health and its protection, and certainly for this seed. And God certainly protected that seed all the way through. But you could see how man, if it was left up to man, they would have destroyed that. There's times when you're studying the kings, there's no godly kings ever in the northern tribes. Not one, does the Bible say, they followed after the ways of David and loved God. And half of the ones in the southern kingdom are just as bad. And yet God protects that seed, but he's given them a way, he's given them a biblical morality that keeps them from coming apart. Now, 
these sexual impulses that these nations around them had, God knew would, would be influential on them. And, and the nations were steeped in, in these incestuous relationships. And that's why the language here is, is, is difficult, right? You start in verse 6, and now none of you shall approach any blood relative and cover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover nakedness of your father. That is the nakedness of your mother. She's your mother. You are not to, to uncover her nakedness and, and so forth. And father and sister and daughters and sons. And it works its way down here. Because in the world around them, that was the way they actually worshipped their gods. It, it's really hard to study this stuff at times. Because you're trying to get your mind around the statement of not be like these nations. I read one account where in the last couple of years they did surveys because they're starting finally to get into places that they have not been able to get in before where inbreeding occurs, where incest and inbreeding of families happens. And the numbers of birth effects and deformations and problems are just staggering. Gina and I um, planted our first church. We had a Paiute reservation, and Paiute Indians were in the area, and we would do vacation Bible schools up there and try to get Bible studies. A very, very dark, dark place. In fact, I really never let Gina and the boys go on the res with me. I would do a vacation Bible school, a basketball camp of some sort, because they love to play basketball, and I have 20 kids that would show up, and four to five of them would have some kind of mental retardation of some way. And it was interesting, they all knew what it came from. They knew that a brother had raped a sister and all those things had happened, but no one would talk about it. It was as pagan and scary as you could ever be. So God knew what was healthy for man. Even in the livestock world, maybe you've been to a fair or some you know, wax museum and you see a two-headed calf. Well, that's really easy to explain about. You left a bull in too long and he started breeding his own offspring. And you get all kinds of problems from that. You have to change your bulls out every two years. And, and this is a problem because the genetic code there, and I always get asked the questions a lot of times by the kids. Well, what about you know, Adam and Eve and their kids? And Didn't Abraham marry his kind of sister? Well, yeah, that's true. And certainly in the early stages of manatee, this marital relationships between brothers and sisters and eventually cousins probably took place. But the genetic code was not so deep. And there came a time where it was no longer needed and God made it improper. And it remains that way today. And it's clear when you study this Leviticus 18 that eventually the practice of the patriarchs, they were already practicing this before it came to this. And anytime they didn't, there was great problems, great consequences. You can remember some of the scenes in the book of Genesis. Now, this phrase, to uncover nakedness, is used 17 times. And I think it's the Bible's polite way of speaking of sexual immorality and sexual acts. And these atrocities were just commonplace in the pagan nations around them. And, and it just became not only for their self 
pleasure, but for their religious practices. But you go, well, how could they do this? But then you come to 1 Corinthians 5 in verses 7 and 8. If you look at verse 7 and 8, it's happening in Corinth. You go, oh my goodness. Here's a church with verses 7 and 18 of Leviticus happening in it. I might add this, and I think I would be amiss not to, that uncovering nakedness really finds its fulfillment today in what? Pornography. I think there's a clear link here, right? You study this stuff, which you hate too, but every once in a while you have issues you have to deal with, you realize that pornography eventually leads to an incestuous appetite. Extremely dangerous. Extremely uh, unhealthy for a family. No matter what, there's a certain rise now with girls now engaging in pornography. And yet, parents, we take a little computer and we put it in the hands of our children. And, and sometimes with no instruction and no help and with one swipe, all the things of Leviticus 18 could be before them. These things are deadly stuff and God is warning. He does not want this part of his people. He's, he, he gave... This is hard. This is hard. He gave nakedness to a godly marriage. He gave that to a husband and a wife who love each other. And he gave it absolutely to them and to no one else. It's not to go to anyone else. And when that is protected and cared for and even even worship that God would give us its intimacy with our spouses and we could enjoy the pleasures of intimacy and reflect the glory of God and Christ and his church. We're humbled by that. And yet that and money becomes the leading cause of divorce within Christian marriages. God warns us. He warns us of this. I think a good marriage, and we'll talk more about this on Sunday. In a sense, we see Genesis 2.25 restored in a good Christian marriage. Not perfect, as we're, we're not perfect yet. But this great, beautiful scene of unashamed nakedness in the garden, and there, most likely, the pre-incarnate Christ introducing Adam to his bride, with no ashamedness at all, completely given to each other in this beautiful gift. And that's all given up when you read through this list. And I'm not going to read through it because I got sick reading through it the first time. That's reserved for you. I think there's also, this is a command against polygamy. Polygamy has to be part of this. Right? And you think about uncovering of nakedness. So after listing, and here's a list. I'll just read you the list. Uncovering the nakedness of your father, mother, son, daughter, brother, sister, in-laws, grandparents, grandchildren, aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews. Verse 14 ends with this strong admonition. It is lewdness. 
The Hebrew word is translated in our different translations, lewdness, depravity, and wickedness. The word is used throughout the scriptures as acts of lewdness, crime. It's used for the word crime. Devising evil, evil intent, immorality, and wicked schemes, wickedness, cunning plots, and is associated with prostitution and incest throughout the Bible. See, God knew the plan for a biblical family. He laid it out, he gave it to them, and Satan went after it. And he's still after it today. He's after our marriages, he's after our children, he's after the minds and hearts of believers to defile themselves in lewdness so that we will not reflect the glory of our God. Third, we come to some other laws of rebellion against God and his plan for the family, 19 through 23. And in verse 19, we come to a command that was given in verse 15 already, that when a woman is going through her menstrual cycle, that there's not to be a relationship there. You would be unclean to do that. But many theologians said, this is more than this. this is, he's repeating this because it's more than this. And one, one man said that this was part of the pagan Canaanite worship. That's how pagan and godless this was. And God wanted his people to have nothing to do with this at all. Today, a husband is kind knowing that his wife has to suffer through aspects of the fall and he's kind. But this was this lewd act done in worship of some dead pagan god in verse 20 god isolates the command against adultery he comes right after it here and in, in the pagan world women were just property so if you were stronger and bigger you could take their property and become your property and you do whatever you wanted with it that's the way the pagan world went adultery just violates this marriage covenant that god gave it goes sinfully against god's design and it brings great damage to Nation and individuals. A nation full of divorce is a nation in trouble. And look, I, I understand, and I'll touch on these things as we go through 1 Corinthians 7. There's biblical, biblical outs of marriage, right? God gives them. He protects people in that. But that's not the problem here. The problem is your passion and your desire gets the best of you and your desire you want something that belongs to somebody else and both old testament and new testament teach against this heavily doesn't it so this is not just some old testament law this is a, a, a teaching the seventh command that goes throughout scriptures too many times as pastors hear justifications of adultery i wrote down a thought a few that I, i've heard my spouse just doesn't understand me and I usually follow that to committed adultery. I found my soulmate. We believe God led us together, one man told me. I go, not the God. That little God that sits on your heart? Yeah, maybe him. But not the God. It's all attempts to justify sin. And so here he wants this made clear. Look how much he's protecting marriage in the dirt, out in the desert, living in tents. He's protecting marriage at this time. He wants it protected. He wants it held sacred. 
So any form of adultery goes against these clear commands, and it just ignores the destruction. I, many times I've sat with a man and said, do you know what's going to come from this? Do you know, do you understand the generational devastation that you are about ready to bring? Blinded. Notice in verse 20 it says, to defile, be defiled with her. And that's God talking. Married people in here, work at your marriage. Repent, walk with God. I know we all have tensions in our life and struggles. We live in this fallen world and we've got to be quick to ask forgiveness and we don't want to fall into this position of defiled. Look at verse 21. You should not give any of your offspring to offer them to Moloch. Nor should you profane the name of God. I am the Lord. The pagan nations around Israel worshipped a horrific sinful idol called Moloch. Moloch was a metal statue. You've heard me probably talk on this before. You understand this. It was metal. They built a fire in it. It came blazing hot. He had arms. And there they would lay out their infants in the outstretched arms of a red-hot idol. They would beat drums to sound out the screams of the children as they offered their offspring to Moloch. God identifies it as demonic. Psalms 106, 35 through 38. But they mingled with the nations. He's talking about Israel. They mingled with the nations. They learned their practices. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and daughters to the demons. They shed innocent blood and the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Leviticus 20, we'll see in a few weeks, God pronounces a death sentence if you worship Moloch. Jeremiah chapter 7, he's begging the nation to come to repentance and he reminds them of their sin, of how they burnt their sons and their daughters, chapter 7, verse 31, in fire. And God said, I never commanded you to do that. Despite the great incredible wisdom of King Solomon, 1 Kings 11 says that Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcon, the detestable idol of the Amorites, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Keshmas, the detestable idol of Moab, and on the mountain which was east of Jerusalem. And for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon, thus also he did all these for his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. The northern tribes are brought under judgment, 2 Kings Chapter 17, because they worshiped Moloch. King um, Manasseh, and the, and, excuse me, the northern tribes, uh, but King Manasseh was in the southern tribes. He gave his own son to Moloch, 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 6, and was finding the young Josiah king who destroyed the temple of Moloch. Notice in verse 21 it says, Nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And certainly this is sinful behavior that is to the, blasphemes the name of God. And it's all built around this sexual sin. It blasphemes God. Sexual sin blasphemes God. 
there's a tie-in here, isn't there, to abortion? One of the things I read about Moloch is became this emphasize where they often took illegitimate children from illegitimate relationships, and those are the ones they burned to Moloch. And children born with deformities, they destroyed them with Moloch as well. Sound familiar? Sexual sin just leads to death. It leads to murder. That's why we believe it's murder. So the worship of Moloch was this ancient perversion of birth control. It still happens today. Even the rabbis, after they returned to the land and again stayed under discipline and under rule from Rome and so forth, but even the rabbis called Moloch later, they called him the king of shame. Because they felt ashamed that they had participated with him. Verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Well, it doesn't get any more simple and clear that God, what God thinks about homosexuality. And no matter how hard they're pushing right now, and, and what's so sad, brothers and sisters, is the push with, from within, quote, Christianity to accept this. Major players, maybe people you even listen to on sermons at one time or another, have bought into this. And it doesn't change, right? God's intent for, for marriage and sexual relationships has always been in the confines of a, a covenant marriage between a man and a woman. Genesis 2, God said it. Matthew 19, Jesus said it. Holy Spirit inspired all of it. So you've got the whole trinity saying marriage is between a man and a woman, nothing else. That's where it, that's where it stands. So same-sex relationships go against God's design for the family. And so Leviticus 18, Romans chapter 1 these are constantly reported as offensive. Offensive to those who want to have a God and live out their lifestyle. You want to get them mad, you just take them to those passages. And that's not our goal. Our goal is want them to be saved. We want them to be as such were some of you. That's our goal. But true love for humanity, listen, and this is where we come in. True love for humanity, true love to love the things that God loves, says we won't cave on this. How horrible would it be for the church to say, well, we know God directly says this, but we're going to back away from this one. Isn't that cruel? It's cruel. I have had too many parents in my office through the years weeping over their children that have gone into homosexuality and begging me to help them how, how to win them back. And not just accept it. Notice in 22, he calls it an abomination. This word is one of the strongest words condemning anything in the Hebrew vocabulary. God judges homosexual acts. Early on, Genesis 19, Lot and all that. Judges 19, oh, that was a terrible passage of just disgusting things that happened. God brings great judgment. And when Israel rebels, they serve pagan nations. In 1 Corinthians 14 and 15 described that they took on not only the idols, but male occult prostitutes as well. So God calls it abomination. The definition of the word means abhorrent, repugnant, pagan worship. 
before their false gods. As Christians, our goal is to teach the truth in love even to those who are caught into sins that God calls abomination. And that's our job. We, we do love those sinners. We really strive to love them and show them that there is a way out. We know it's a divine work of God, but who else is going to teach it to them? What, what, who else in the world is going to stand up against the gender issues and the blatant defilement against God's family? That's our goal as Christians. We get to do this. We get to say, oh God, help my daughter, my son, my friends, children, or whoever this is. God, give me opportunity. Help me love them and, and yet stand firmly on the word of God and not contone that such behavior. Verse 23, intercourse with an animal. Went on a website of all of the archaeological discoveries of the Canaanite dead gods. They've discovered at least 55 of them. There were several in there that were described that they were worshipped by human sexual acts with animals. This is right out the door, right out your tent. <laughs> and you're in this little town, little, little group of Israel living in your tent. And this is what's around you. Notice it talks about Egypt in that verse. Herodias, the ancient Greek writer, wrote about the acts that they would have witnessed in Egypt. In this bestiality type of pagan, pagan worship that they would have raised their children and raised in that environment. And notice in verse 23 that this immoral behavior causes one to defile himself. And then look at this. That person is rightly regarded as one of perversion. That's where we get our word pervert. It's perversion. It's perversion is taking what God intended as good and to made it evil. Bestiality is still legal in many countries. Several European nations still do not punish it at all. All these sins are rebellion against God and his design for family. Lastly, God's urgent call to obey the, his command and sexual morality and the protection of his design of his family. It is a true Christian church and our biblical morality that we have from the Bible really leads us away from these things. It leads us away from fornication, adultery, pedophilia, polygamy, prostitution, homosexuality, gender rejection, bestiality. All these are in this. All of it's contrary to the word of God. And these biblical pr principles, they, they promote Christ's church to, to grasp on to what God wants, the way God wants us to live. So many great promises. The nation had great promises. I'll, I'll, I'll run out your enemies. I'll wipe them out. I'll give you houses you didn't build, vineyards you don't have. I'll bring you into all of that. Just obey me in this. And the same is true with us. You want to have a good marriage. Life's hard. We're going to have some difficulties from time to time. But you want to have a good marriage that lasts many years? Obey God's word. Do not give to someone else that only belongs to her or him. Protect it. Guard it. Enjoy it. And teach it to the next generation. 
wrapping up a few verses here, verse 24 carries the idea of don't defile yourself and act like the nations around you. He keeps reminding, remember, seven times, not like the nations, 25. It's people who defile uh, are defiled. The, the, the land really spews them out. There's a punishment that comes with it. Man, did they get spewed out, didn't they, the nation of Israel? They went from captivity to captivity to captivity. And they cried out for God in the depths of their captivities because of this. I like verses 26 and 27 because I think it's a real charge to men. Verse 26, but as for you, you shall keep my statutes and my judgments, and you shall not do any of these abominations, neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations, and the land has become defiled. Men do not copy the men of the world. They have nothing to offer you but destruction. Verse 29 says that, 29, if you follow these things, you will be cut off. Romans 1 says, given over. I'm telling you, Romans 1 and Leviticus 18, there's such parallels there in so many ways. Verse 30, we're to believe God's word because he's worthy. I am the Lord your God. He can help you. If you're here today and you're struggling with same-sex attraction, God's word can rescue you. It's hard. You're going to need help. But it will rescue you. He's God. He's creator. He speaks things into existence. He knows our thoughts before we think them. He knows every molecule that makes us up. He has the power to help us. If you're dabbling with pornography or anything else that would lead you into defiling God's family and God in any way, repent of those things. Sin has consequences when it's not repented of, and it will destroy what you love the most. And church, let's lovingly stand firm on God's plan for the family. Let's not give in. Like we've said so many times in the last few weeks, if we don't stand, who will? It's Christ's people, Christ's redeemed stand. We do it lovingly. We do it with broken hearts at times because some of this stuff affects us and our own families, doesn't it? I would imagine everyone in this room has some family member, either near or distant, who is caught up in homosexuality. We do. It's devastating. But we have the answers. And God will save because such were some of us. Father, thank you for Leviticus 18, very challenging, Lord. I think mostly because it's heartbreaking. The nation was supposed to be a light. They're supposed to be a light to the nations around them. But their disobedience led them into shame. But Lord, you raise up the church while you keep the nation of Israel under discipline. And now we are your light. You indwell us and we are the light we are the gospel representation. We are the lives that have been changed. We have hope for the hopeless. And though there is great anger and even hatred towards us, God, help us stand and speak the truth, teach the truth, live the truth in love. And Lord, we pray that you would rescue more like us 
liars and thieves, lustful. Maybe some even in here came out of some of these other sins. But Lord, you love to save. And so we ask that you would use us in our and the way we handle your word rightly, the way we handle our own marriages, the way we conduct ourselves as elders and leaders of the church and the body of believers, the membership. Lord, help us to work um, in tandem together. Pulling on the oars of biblical truth together in a loving way so that those in the world say they have something, they have peace, they have something that I don't have. And Lord, you will draw them. And would you use us? Lord, finally, I just want to close and pray for those in this room who a passage like this hurts a little more because they have children, close family members that are caught in some of these devastating sins. I pray you would strengthen them tonight. Cause them to know that you love them and you are still in control no matter what children or spouses may do. And you have the power to change life. So help us, Lord, not to give up. But when we're weak, Lord, may we turn to you for strength in these difficult times. Lord, protect the children of Riverbend Church. Protect our ministries our youth, our crossroads, our little ones down the hall, Lord. Cause them to grow up with a true understanding of God's design for marriage. And may you save them and may they pursue that design. I pray this in Jesus' name.